The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're studying, it's not really the Buddha's refuges or the Buddhist refuges. We're studying our refuges, you know, like what is it that is available for us here and now. There's a traditional formulation. Um, I'll just read this section and I'll send this along with the excerpt that Mary put together for us too. Uh, so you have this. This comes from Ajahn Sumedho's book, a really wonderful Western Buddhist monk, um, The Mind and the Way. I think it's one of the better introductory books and it's not just introductory, but if you somebody who's really starting to dig in and wants kind of the picture of the path from an early Buddhist point of view, this is a really good text, The Mind and the Way by Ajahn Sumedho. And in the section on the refuges, he writes, the Buddha can be personified. You can make human images of the Buddha, but the next refuge, the Dhamma, has no personal quality to it. So it's useful. It's like the great mystery that's here and now. And uh, it's like here and now, but it's hidden (laughs) behind the veil, like we sometimes say. It's like we know it's here, but the me that's trying to find it prevents the finding, right? the approach is everything. So it's a little bit like we were saying the Buddha takes refuge in me, like if I'm trying to take refuge in the Buddha, we're probably gonna miss it. But if we relax, alert and relax, well, we might see the Buddha taking refuge in us. And um, So yeah, behind the mystery that's here, that is almost always missed because of the, yeah, the force of habit, really. But the next refuge, the Dhamma, has no personal quality to it. You can't make a human image of Dhamma. The symbol for Dhamma that's generally used is that of a wheel. You might have seen this in some Buddhist circles, the eight-spoked wheel representing the path. Because part of the Dhamma that I was talking about earlier is this natural process of awakening. We could say that this, you know, or our human existence is characterized by two dominant processes. Both of them are empty of self, they're natural or impersonal. And one is that seemingly endless looping of dukkha, which we call samsara, that's a natural process. Like a whirlpool that you see in a river, that's a natural process. It's a little weird that the water turns back on its flow, but it does when the causes and conditions are just right, doesn't it? And the same thing, we chase our own tail a lot of the time in a way that's stressful. We think something and then we react to what we just thought. And then we think it again and we, 
and we create that same kind of vortex or whirlpool that's stressful. And a lot of our psychic activity every day is just sort of made up of that stressful circling of our minds, our mind's activity, maybe we should say. And the awakening process is also a natural process when the conditions that support it are there. So that, that's how the Dhamma has been represented as a wheel, which is kind of an interesting but impersonal object. And then Ajahn Sumedho writes, Dhamma means truth, the truth of the way it is. So Dhamma includes everything, humans, animals, devils, angels, all the gods, all the things that one can conceive or perceive, and also the immortal truth. Dhamma includes everything, the knowing, the truth, the conditions, all sense experience, emptiness, and all forms. Everything is Dhamma. This is Dhamma. <clears throat> and it's all here. You might remember that discourse that gets often used in Dharma talks where this uh, celestial being comes down for some teachings, tells the Buddha that he's traveled to the ends of the earth, the ends of the universe even, looking for the truth, looking for release, and hasn't found it, and then asks the Buddha, like, what gives, you know? Because he's, he's a celestial being, he's got some power to go to the end of the universe, you know? And yet he didn't find that unshakable release, the mind that is beyond birth and death, beyond change not caught in the cycling of samsara. And the Buddha says, well, you have to find that release, but you don't find that release by going somewhere, or you could even say doing something. Right? And this is the, I'll just read that. I'll tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there's no making an end to suffering and stress without reaching the end, the end of the world, the end of existence. Provocative. And then he adds, the Buddha adds, yet it is just within this fathom-long body, with its perception, its intellect, that I declare that there is this world, this world of suffering, the origin of this stress and suffering, and the cessation of this stress and suffering, and the path. All of that is here and now, in the Dhamma. This is our working ground, this life. And this really helps us just get a sense of the path. It isn't about escaping this. It's about using this. That's why that simple phrase. Uh, it might have even come from Ajahn Sumedho, I'm forgetting where I heard it, but the marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. The coming together of intimacy and non-grasping. And a lot of what we'll notice when we remember, like, oh yeah, intimacy, not, well, that will be our cue to relax and open, and we'll notice grasping. And then you know, like some resistance, some agenda, some striving. But then we can practice letting that be, 
right? Not grasping even, not reacting even to the reactivity. Oh, yeah. So that's really important in terms of understanding Dhamma is, and just generally the three refuges, is not to idealize these things. You know, the triple gem is one of the phrases we have in early Buddhism. And it's, it is kind of, it can be in sort of lay Buddhist or, you know, more devotional settings, something to revere. We revere the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. When I practiced in Burma and I ordained as a monk, they, they let you do temporary ordination and um, just walking, uh, walking from one end of the monastery where the food was served, where we ate, back to where my cabin was, um, you cross a public road that kind of goes right down through the middle of the monastery. And uh, if someone were walking down that road, like one day, for example, just an older woman, I mean, she looked really old, but just seeing me, a monk, gets down on her knees, does her three prostrations. Right? I mean, it's, it's like a whole cultural thing you have to get used to because anybody in robes is, the, is a representation of sangha, enlightened, awakened activity. Right now, not that many of the monks or nuns are necessarily awakened beings, but it's a symbol, just like the statues, when you walk in, like in a lot of Asian contexts, certainly at a lot of the monasteries, if you walk in a room and if there's a Buddha Rupa, a statue, you get on your knees and you bow down three times. And the same thing with uh, being respectful of Dhamma, like the external representation of Dhamma or any of the books that are talking about the Buddha's path, right? And so you treat them with respect. They're at the top of the bookshelf, not on one of the lower shelves. And just even how you handle your books and, you know, there's just this, because it's one of the triple gems. And uh, I think it's nice to have these external representations, but we want to understand what they point to, what's really worthy of that devotion and that respect, because it isn't the statue, which is just a statue, but the statue represents something, and it is even that person who lived 2,500 years ago. But it's actually that statue and the person who lived 25 years, uh, 2,500 years ago represents what's possible here and now. That's what's worthy of our reverence, that, oh, I'm not just an imperfect, frumpy human being. We all have this capacity to be profoundly wise and kind in a boundless, unshakable way. Now, do we run into a lot of those people? No, but we, we should sense this possibility and we should sense progress, like a life that, you know, it isn't continual steps forward. It may be 10 steps forward and eight steps back and two steps forward and four steps back and 15 steps forward and one step back and, right? So it's, it's not continuous, but 
over time we really see that, oh yeah, if I can go from A to B, then I might be able to go from A to Z, right? We can open to the possibility that even the latent tendencies to be neurotic, to be self-centered, to be greedy, to be caught up in hate, that even those latent tendencies could be at least begun to be uprooted, if not completely uprooted. And it's really useful to, uh, to expand our imagination, like, oh yeah, I can see that. We know some people who have uprooted a lot of stinginess and say, oh, I can do that too, maybe. If they, it's clearly possible. You know, this person's capacity for patience or this person's capacity for uncontrived kindness and this person's capacity for that clarity and the steadiness of their samadhi, their unified mind as we sense it relative my, to my scattered, distracted mind. Right? We, we can pick up from our connection with others and teachers and the tradition what, like open our mind to what's possible. So we really get a, that we activate that devotional sense of what Buddha, the images for Buddha, the word Buddha, the concept, the, our idea of Buddha, like, and how to connect that with something that moves our heart, moves that devotional energy. Oh yeah, Cause it, and, and to always remember it's here and now. Like all of that other ornate stuff, it's just, if it's useful, it's got to point to something that for us, subjectively, we sense is here and now, not out there. Same with Dhamma. The path, the natural, remember the path is a natural process. And natural processes, processes are inherently effortless in the sense that nobody is burdened. Like when a natural process is happening, like when water is freezing, or water, frozen water, ice is thawing, it's not hard work for anyone when a natural process unfolds. When a weather system blows in, there is no personal buddy sweating it out, like trying to get in. And so that helps us. Like it helps us observe us when we're suffering and we're caught and suffering, like to see like, oh yeah, in a sense, in conventional language, I'm doing this, I'm really suffering, I'm really caught, I'm really reacting. But it's almost like we can step back, we know it really hurts, and maybe it's really destructive, but we also sense that it's happening on its own, like it's a natural force. Oh yeah, I'm spiraling into hell, and it's like this. And this leads to that, and that triggers this, and then this, and that, and, and it's all just doing what nature does. It flows, it moves according to these interdependent, interrelated forces. And same with awakening. So I want to go back to this uh, few paragraphs from Ajahn Sumedho. So I ended it by saying the last sentence was, Dhamma includes everything, the knowing, the truth, the conditions, all sense experience, emptiness, and all forms, everything is Dhamma. 
Now I'm going to go through this traditional recitation that Ajahn Sumedho writes about here. It comes right from the Buddhist teachings about what is Dhamma. And I just encourage you to look right here and now. And it's almost like you're letting the truth of the moment reveal itself. Don't try too hard to find what these words might be pointing to, but just let the hearing and the whatever understanding that comes from the hearing be the cause for any more clarity that might arise. Does that make sense? And that's just a, you know, a nice tip about how we meditate or what wise effort is in meditation. Not so much me trying to get on top of this mind once and for all and make it behave, but sort of letting something happen and gently playing with the conditions so that something useful like learning, having deeper insight or settling, you know, how can I gently contribute to the natural tendencies in ways that lead to the settling of the mind. So Ajahn writes, Ajahn Sumedha writes, meditation is a way of opening to Dhamma. You're opening to the truth. So when we chant about Dhamma, we say that it is apparent here and now, sandatiko, apparent here and now. So we don't need a different moment because it's apparent here and now. And then the next one is timeless, akaliko, it's the Pali, timeless, which means it's not dependent on any concept like time or location or any concept whatsoever. Here and now, timeless. And then the next is encouraging investigation, ehipasiko. It's a common phrase in the suttas. Encouraging investigation. That means that it has the flavor of freedom. It's, there's something onward leading, something that's here and now and not dependent on any concept, any interpretation. It's here and now, you don't need to think, you don't need to worry about thinking. And, it's, and it has that, you could even say, emotional flavor of being onward leading, trustworthy, because it feels in the direction of release. So in that spiritual sense, pleasurable, trustworthy. And release is a nice word here. You know, we use opening, but releasing, putting down the load, unfixing or unbinding is another nice word. Something that is unbinding, unwinding, disentangling. And it feels that disentangling feels good. So it's apparent here and now, timeless, 
onward leading, having that trustworthy flavor of release, of disentangling. Leading to liberation, opanayiko, to be experienced for oneself, no one can do it for us. And also what that means is what we need is here. So that can dispel any thought, well, not now, because my knee hurts, or I'm restless, or I'm hungry, I'm sleepy, I'm too cold. Parent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, that sense of freedom, has the taste of liberation. Available for oneself, to be experienced for oneself, realizable by the wise. Waititobo binhuhi, binhuhi. But that last one is realizable by the wise. And you know, ignorance here, like we may not know what it is to be wise, but we can know what it is to be ignorant. Ignorance in this sense is thinking we know, because right? that's a obstruction to opening, to Dhamma, trusting Dhamma, is thinking we know. Because when we think we know, we're not really open or curious. We're trying to find what we think we know, what we think is here. I came across this, uh, some notes I took from um, when Krista Kippis uh, interviewed Stephen Batchelor. Um, he's a wonderful Buddhist scholar and a number of very interesting books, including... One of the books that made him somewhat famous was uh, one of his early ones. May, might have been his first book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, maybe? I think so. Is that something? Mm-hmm. Buddhism Without Beliefs. And uh, yeah, he, and I think this is where he's speaking from, although this is in this interview. And I think it was Krista Tippetts who was mentioning initially that Kierkegaard said that faith without doubt is to believe too readily, especially without adequate evidence and that in doubt, faith can begin. I think she's quoting Kierkegaard there. In doubt, faith can begin. All people, I think this is Krista Tippett's now, all people involved in spiritual practice of whatever persuasion must confront doubt at one time or another and find a way uh, beyond it to believe, however temporary. And this you know, isn't so much Buddhist language, And I think this was uh, her introduction to the interview with Stephen, and she has one more sentence here. But faith is not equivalent to mere belief. Faith is the condition of ultimate confidence that we have the capacity to follow the path of doubt to to its end. I really like that. Uh, And again, I'm guessing it's from Krista Tippett's. Faith is not equivalent to mere belief. Faith is the condition of ultimate confidence that we have the capacity to follow the path of Buddha to its end. So what that means to us, you know, Buddha being intimate with Dhamma and allowing this expression of Sangha, this free 
and wise and compassionate participation or response one moment at a time without a plan. That's Sangha, right? We'll get there next week. The more this week is Buddha being intimate with Dhamma and how they have to work together, these two, and how it's always wild. It's never, we can never own it or grasp it. And however, like the Buddha says, however we might conceive it, it will forever be otherwise. It will never be what we think it is because you can't, it can't be captured with words. Words is always, you know, words can be quite useful to point us, but they're not useful to sort of hold the truth or be the truth. And that's an important distinction because in human culture for a long time, in many, so many different variations, we have thought that the words are the thing that are holy or special and the meaning that the words create. But words are just pointers, like that Zen story about the finger pointing to the moon, you know, and you mistake the finger for the thing the finger's pointing to. No, 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 <laughs> don't look at my finger, look at the moon. Right? And that's, the, that's just kind of captures this point. So now here's uh, Stephen Batchelor's response to what uh, um, Krista Tippett's, uh, in, when he introduced, uh, she introduced him. But it is really about opening up to life as profoundly mysterious. And rather than trying to solve the mystery, it's actually about penetrating that mystery. And when you penetrate a mystery, this is the part I like. It doesn't become less mysterious. It becomes, if anything, more mysterious, right? The more we get clear about Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, the more it can't be grasped. Hard to talk about. Always feels off when we try to talk about it. Some of you know this. You've been on retreats or you've had some opening experiences, some insight. And one of the warnings we often give, teachers often give students at the end of a retreat is, you know, be a little careful if immediately, you know, your first fan who's never been interested in Buddhism or meditation, just casually, because they, you know, it's just sort of what we do when we see somebody. How you doing? <laughs> what you been up to? And then you just sort of spill your deepest, experiences or you try your best to articulate them and you can kind of get yourself in this place where great doubt will, will arise because your articulation of what happened is so distant from what happened. And then that person's reaction on top of that can really leave us feeling like maybe that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I'm just, I've joined a cult. <laughs> And now I'm realizing that was just a joke. You know, that wasn't <clears throat> real or significant in any way. I want my money back. <laughs> Here's a few more sentences here. So again, <clears throat> it becomes, if anything, more mysterious. So this source of questioning and doubt is something that, 
as you go into it, only intensifies, only becomes, in a sense, more pronounced. Right? We're realizing more and more, I don't know, or whatever I know isn't it. And the more we get into our practice, the more we have to leave behind, not cling to what we know. And this is even true with samadhi. I mean, it's the basic trick with supporting our mind dropping into a quiet place. I mean, it's actually not that different than figuring out how to fall asleep at night. <laughs> you know, this is like a classic problem where I, where somebody's lying in bed thinking, I gotta go to bed, I got a busy day tomorrow, and thinking about that I have to get to sleep is not conducive to falling asleep. What's conducive to falling asleep is not to be personally invested in trying to fall asleep. So, you know, the classic thing is, well, count sheep, right? It's like, do something that takes you out of the picture of you being worried about not sleeping or you trying to get yourself to sleep. Disengage that by doing something stupid, <laughs> count sheep or whatever you know, people figure out to do, so that the natural process of falling asleep can happen. Well, it's actually not that different than dropping into a deep state of meditation. It's like learning how to get out of the way. And it, it's not just letting habits do their thing, because that's endless. That won't lead to deep samadhi. But it, isn't, it also isn't you or me trying to make it happen, especially the deeper states. We, as an individual, an ego, egoic being, we can get close, we can kind of will our way to a relatively quiet space where there's not a lot of neurotic activity because we're all, you know, the self is on the lookout. Stop that. <laughs> Don't do that. No, stay here. Stay with the breath. Right? But then what needs to happen, and this is hard for us, is we have to relax and we have to trust and we have to allow or figure out how to help and allow a natural process to happen. It's like what Mary's point uh, that she mentioned at the end of last week, that Buddha wants to take refuge in us. And samadhi wants to express itself here and now in this body and mind. The snow globe wants to settle. <laughs> But every time I'm going, I want to settle, I'm shaking up the snow globe, right? So how do we support the natural process of samadhi, that unification and settledness of awareness, and of insight, seeing what we haven't seen? We don't see what we haven't seen before in terms of spiritual insight. It happens naturally, unavoidably, when the conditions are there which is that stable awareness and the continuity of that stable awareness. And what also helps grease the wheel is some wise teachings that have been contemplated, that have loosened the screws so the mind isn't 
neurotically imposing wrong view, those screws have been loosened a little bit. There's more, well, who knows, going on in the mind. So we have that continuity of stable present moment awareness and some loose screws where we're not neurotically trying to impose the conditioned view of self, good and bad, dualistic kind of ways of thinking, that's gotten quieted because of the power of the teachings, even on that intellectual level, like, who knows? Maybe it isn't the way I've always thought it is. Sure seems like it is, but I'm just gonna keep an open mind. Yeah, and then when all those pieces come together, insight deepens. Let me finish this up before we break into small groups. So this is Stephen Batchelor again. It becomes, if anything, more mysterious. So the source of questioning and doubt is something that, as you go into it, only intensifies, only becomes, in a sense, more pronounced. But that doesn't lead you into a kind of chaotic bafflement. It actually becomes a still, I think, rather than serene relationship. It actually becomes, I wonder if this got uh, typed out wrong. It actually becomes a still, I think, rather than serene relationship. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It becomes a still, I think, rather than a serene relationship that you begin to cultivate with life as such, that everything, every detail of life, every person you meet, every situation you find yourself in, is one that, in a sense, is deeply surprising, deeply odd. It lets go of your, it lets go of your habitual views and opinions about this, that, or the other, and less firm ground to stand on. And it reminds me of that poem by Havis and the line "Tripping over joy." Right? There's something joyful about opening to Dhamma which is here and now, apparent here and now, right? So it's just, you know, initially Dhamma is just the idea and then it's the bare attention of seeing and hearing and touching and thoughts or thoughts. And then it's the underlying flow, you know, the unfixed flow, movement of bodily and mental activity and it's conditional, lawful unfolding and its impersonal nature, right? And it's whenever there's identification, there's tension. And then it's just what stands out is its emptiness, like not so much what Dhamma is, but what's not there, that it's empty of what habit and wrong view presumed was there. Self, me, a permanent something back there. So there's like all these flavors of Dhamma from gross to the most subtle, most profound, most liberating. But we just start with the obvious, like, and it's just like, we call it sometimes turning inward, but, you know, words don't really make sense. It's just like, in a way, opening is more useful. But it makes sense to turn inward in the sense of acknowledging that this is, in a sense, my subjective experience. This is my reality. 
there is nothing for me right now but this. And same for you, it's everyone here, right? There's just this being known, and that's Dhamma, and that's a refuge. And we bring the awakening, the opening to that, that's the intimacy, and we realize deep in this realization of non-grasping. Nobody needing to do anything. That's the non-grasping. Nobody needing to do anything. It's all happening on its own. And that all happening on its own includes this life being lived. And Mark being Mark, doing what Mark does and what he doesn't do. And in your small groups tonight, what I thought might be useful to talk about is just your own understanding, experience, confidence in Buddha, what that means for you, how you hold it, your sense of it, Dhamma. It's also okay to talk about Sangha. And then, you know, we talk about Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, so, and you can even talk about the opposite. So instead of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, you can talk about your experience of not Buddha, right? Instead of that kind of clear seeing, you know, it's like projection. Thinking, you know, expecting to see something, expecting to find something, that projection, projecting our view, our expectation on our experience. And then what we meet is just a reflection of our ignorant expectation or limited view of things, right? We're always, in a sense, finding our own reflection everywhere. Same old, same old. <laughs> you know, the oh poor me, again and again. You know, we just find the same thing and we keep looking and we find the same thing. Because, you know, when we're in that world of our ideas and interpretations, we can do different riffs on the same stuff, but we're still in the same box always. It's like uh, somebody started this simile of rearranging the furniture in prison. That's the best we do, and there's probably better ways and worse ways to arrange the furniture in prison, but even if we figure out the best way to arrange the furniture, we're still in prison. And the practice is to realize that what we imagine the prison, you know, the walls, that they're transparent or porous or they're not what they appear to be. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.